Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, looks like we hit on one of those wars that most Americans forget we even fought. The Spanish-American War in 1898. Specifically, we'll be looking at the Battle of San Juan Hill. If you remember this battle from your school days, it's probably because it was the one where Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders charged their way to fame. But this battle was about more than just a future president and his volunteers gaining glory. It was one of the most significant engagements of the war. And along with the subsequent siege of Santiago, forced Spain's hand and sealed an American victory. Let's start with some background information. In 1895, Cuban rebels began fighting for independence from Spanish colonial rule. This rebellion, of course, led to political and economic instability. And because Cuba is so close to the United States, they began to watch with growing concern. Let's remember that apart from trade interests with Cuba, the U.S. had a long-held interest in ridding the Western Hemisphere of European colonial powers, going way back to the Monroe Doctrine. On top of this, public outrage over Spanish atrocities the real ones and the embellished ones reported by the yellow press created a great deal of sympathy for the Cuban revolutionaries. As time went on, tensions between the U.S. and Spain increased. In December 1897, riots broke out in Havana. The U.S. responded by sending the battleship Maine to Havana Harbor to safeguard U.S. citizens and property. Then, on February 9, 1898, the New York Journal, printed a private letter from the Spanish minister in Washington, Enrique Dupe de Lome. In this letter, de Lome called U.S. President William McKinley weak and a popularity hunter. De Lome promptly resigned, and the Spanish government made a formal apology, but it sure got a number of Americans fired up. But some foreign minister insulting the president was nothing compared to what would happen six days later. On the night of February 15th, a massive explosion on the main caused her to sink in Havana Harbor and killed over 260 of her crew. Now, responsibility for this explosion has never been definitively determined, but a U.S. Naval Board found evidence that an initial explosion from outside the hull, like from a mine or torpedo, in turn caused the battleship's forward magazine to explode. The Spanish government said they had nothing to do with what happened, and even offered to submit the question of their responsibility to arbitration, but it was too late. The sensationalist yellow press jumped all over the story, and unquestionably held Spain responsible in article after article. This got the American public even more fired up, and gave rise to the popular rallying cry of, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. So, on April 11th, with the situation rapidly escalating, 
President McKinley asked Congress for authorization to end the fighting in Cuba between the Cuban revolutionaries and the Spanish forces, and to establish a stable government to ensure the peace and security of Cuban and U.S. citizens on the island. On April 20th, Congress responded by passing a joint resolution that acknowledged Cuban independence and demanded that the Spanish government give up control of the island. It also foreswore any intention on the part of the U.S. to annex Cuba and authorized McKinley to use whatever military force he thought necessary to guarantee Cuban independence. Yeah, Spain didn't take too kindly to this and utterly rejected what they saw as a U.S. ultimatum and broke off diplomatic relations. McKinley responded on April 22nd with a naval blockade of Cuba and called for 125,000 military volunteers on the 23rd. Also on April 23rd, Spain declared war on the United States, to which the U.S. Congress responded on the 25th with a declaration of war against Spain. And thus began the Spanish-American War. Wow, that happened quick. The opening battle of the war took place on May 1, 1898, halfway around the world from Cuba. The U.S. Asiatic Squadron, under the command of Commodore George Dewey, absolutely hammered the Spanish naval force defending the Philippines at the Battle of Manila Bay. Meanwhile, back in the Caribbean, upon the declaration of war, a Spanish fleet of four cruisers and three destroyers, under Admiral Pascual Severa, left the Cape Verde Islands and headed toward Cuba. The U.S. Navy lost track of them, and it wasn't until late May that the Spanish fleet was located in Santiago Harbor on Cuba's south coast. The U.S. North Atlantic Squadron, under Rear Admiral William Sampson, and the Flying Squadron, under Commodore Winfield Scott Schley, quickly blockaded the harbor, trapping the Spanish ships. On June 10th, the 1st Marine Battalion landed at Guantanamo Bay and began to move inland. Then, on June 22nd, the 5th Army Corps, under Major General William Shafter, landed east of Santiago. The U.S. plan was to trap Admiral Severa between the advancing land forces and the naval blockade, forcing him to either surrender or bring his ships out to fight. Consequently, Spanish troops began to retreat toward Santiago to defend the city. On June 24th, advanced guard forces of the 5th Corps under the command of Shafter's executive officer, Major General Joseph Wheeler, engaged the Spanish rear guard at the Battle of Las Casimas. Both sides were bloodied in this indecisive battle, but I guess you could say it went in favor of Spain as their rear guard was able to continue their retreat to Santiago in good order. Now, as I said, Admiral Severa was in command of the Spanish fleet in Santiago Harbor. Commanding the Spanish army tasked with defending the city was General Arsenio Linares. His plan was to hold the San Juan Heights against the coming American attack. But here's the thing. This strategic high ground, this place he wanted to stop the Americans, was manned by only 760 Spanish troops. For some inexplicable reason, Linares chose to hold back almost 10,000 troops in reserve stationed around the city. What's up with that? 
So 760 Spanish troops would hold the San Juan Heights. Holding the high ground was an advantage for them. As was the fact that their hilltop fortifications were well protected and well concealed. The problem, though, was that most of these were incorrectly positioned. The fortifications and trench lines were laid out along the geographic crest of the heights, instead of the military crest. Eh? What's that mean? And why is that important? Alright, so look. The geographic crest of a hill is obviously the highest part. The military crest, on the other hand, is an area on the forward slope of a hill below the geographic crest at a point where maximum observation and direct fire covering the slope all the way down to the base of the hill can be obtained. Think of it this way. Imagine a house with a pitched roof. The geographic crest would be the peak of the roof. The military crest would be the edge of the roof right by the gutters. If you were sitting at the peak, you could easily see anyone approaching the house. But when that person got closer, like right up to the base of the house, you couldn't see them anymore. Now instead, think about if you were sitting at the edge of the roof. You'd be able to see anyone's approach and would have them in view all the way to the base of the house. So hopefully that example made some sense. And as you can now see, the Spanish fortifications at the geographic crest meant that they would not be able to directly fire on the Americans when they reached the foot of the heights. Of course, as the Americans made their way up the hill, they'd come to a point in which the Spanish could again see them, and then they'd be susceptible to fire. Most of the Spanish troops were recently arrived conscripts, but they were commanded by officers who had seen plenty of action fighting the Cuban insurgents over the past few years. They were also well-armed, with weapons that were somewhat superior to what the Americans were using. Spanish soldiers carried the Mauser Model 1893 rifle, a modern repeating bolt-action weapon with a high rate of fire. It was chambered for the 7x57mm Mauser cartridge, which was high velocity and used smokeless powder. American troops referred to these as Spanish Hornets, due to the supersonic crack they made as they whizzed overhead. Spanish artillery units fielded modern, rapid-fire breech-loading cannon, which also used smokeless powder. American soldiers carried bolt-action crag rifles, chambered for 30 caliber smokeless rounds. The crag was a popular and reliable rifle, but it had a side-loading gate mechanism that was slow and cumbersome to reload in battle, especially compared to the Spanish Mausers, which were clip-loaded. As for artillery, the U.S. 3.2-inch cannons were of an outmoded design. They were breech-loading, but the projectile and bag powder charge had to be loaded separately. This gave them a slower rate of fire. On top of this, even though the latest model had been designed to use smokeless powder, U.S. production of it was lagging behind demand, so these pieces were forced to use black powder. This limited their effective range. This being said, the U.S. did employ a weapon that the Spanish didn't have, and it would prove to be invaluable. The Gatling gun. A Gatling gun detachment under the command of Lieutenant John Henry Parker was equipped with four 
Colt Model 1895 Gatlings, firing 30 caliber rounds. Even though these guns were hand-cranked, they were capable of 700 rounds per minute of continuous fire, and their swivel mounts allowed them an immense field of coverage. As I said before, the 5th Army Corps was under the command of Major General William Shafter, who had about 15,000 troops in three divisions at his disposal. The Corps' first division was commanded by Brigadier General Jacob Kent, while the second division was under Brigadier General Henry Lawton. The dismounted cavalry division was commanded by Major General Joseph Wheeler. Shafter met with his division commanders to lay out his plan, which would commence on the morning of July 1, 1898. Lawton and his second division would head north to reduce the Spanish stronghold at El Canaan. Lawton boasted that he could accomplish this in two hours, so Shafter told him to do so, then return south to join in the attack on the San Juan Heights. While Lawton and 2nd Division were doing this, Kent and the 1st Division would advance directly toward the heights. Wheeler's Cavalry Division would deploy to their right, and when Lawton returned, his men would form up on Wheeler's right. Any attack would commence. As the operation moved forward, both Shafter and Wheeler fell ill in the tropical heat. Shafter was forced to direct the battle from his headquarters, rather than from the front. This HQ was established at El Pozo, about two miles from the front. He sent messages to his division commanders via aides on horseback. In the early morning hours of July 1st, the troops began to move forward. Lawton and the 2nd Division went north and began their attack on El Canay at around 7 a.m. At the same time, the artillery to support the attack on the heights moved into position on El Pozo Hill near Shafter's HQ. Below them, the cavalry division moved forward across the Aguadores River towards their jumping-off point. As I said, Wheeler had fallen ill, so the division was led by Brigadier General Samuel Sumner. As the American troops pushed forward along a narrow jungle trail, they experienced harassing fire from Spanish snipers and skirmishers. On top of this, the narrow trail caused confusion and a sort of traffic jam to occur as different units jockeyed for position. The cavalry division was the first to reach the San Juan River and forded the knee-deep water. Following behind them was Kent's 1st Division. Four men from the Signal Corps had tagged along and towed a partially filled observation balloon. They launched it so it rose just above the trees to check out the situation but the sight of a balloon rising from the trees let the Spanish know exactly where the Americans were in the jungle below, and heavy Mauser and artillery fire rained down on the Americans from the heights. The balloon was quickly shot down. The one positive to come out of this rather quick balloon flight was that the observer was able to see another trail that the 1st Division could use to speed things up. Most of Brigadier General Hamilton Hawkins's 1st Brigade had already passed by this new trail, but the 3rd Brigade, under Colonel Charles Wickoff, was diverted towards it. Wickoff and his 3rd Brigade ran into a mess of Spanish snipers on the new trail, and he was mortally wounded. The next two officers in line to lead the brigade 
were also promptly taken out as well, leaving command to Lieutenant Colonel Ezra Ewers. Ewers and the 3rd Brigade finally made it to the jumping-off point and took up position to support Hawkins. Colonel E.P. Pearson's 2nd Brigade took the left flank and would also provide the reserve. The objective of the 1st Division was San Juan Hill, which was the higher of the two hills that made up the heights. The aiming point for Hawkins and the 1st Brigade was a Spanish blockhouse perched on the southernmost point of the hill. Meanwhile, the Cavalry Division under Sumner was positioned to the right of this. Their initial objective was Kettle Hill, the lower of the two hills. They were to take this and then push on to support the attack on San Juan Hill. Among the units here were the 1st, 3rd, and 6th Cavalries, the African-American 9th and 10th Cavalry, the famous Buffalo Soldiers, and the 1st Volunteer Cavalry, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Teddy Roosevelt. They, of course, were known as the Rough Riders. Though the American forces were in position to attack, they didn't advance because Shafter was waiting for Lawson's troops to return from El Canet. Yeah, that whole, I can take it in two hours boast, was proven to be wrong. So the day wore on, and the tropical heat rose, and the Americans were taking big-time casualties. Parts of the San Juan River Valley were dubbed Hell's Pocket and Bloody Ford, due to the high losses. After taking enemy fire for some time, Lieutenant Jules Ord, who was a member of Hawkins' staff, asked his commander for permission to lead a charge. Hawkins was rather cautious, but after some discussion, allowed Ord to do this. With the support of Parker's Gatling guns, Ord and the 1st Brigade started charging San Juan Hill. While this was going on, Wheeler, hearing the sound of the artillery, rallied himself from his sickbed and arrived on the scene. He gave Kent the official order for the rest of the 1st Division to attack. Then he went to the cavalry and told Sumner and his other brigade commander, Brigadier General Leonard Wood, to advance. Sumner, with the 3rd, 6th, and 9th Cavalries, moved forward in the first line, followed by Wood with the 1st and 10th Cavalry and the 1st Volunteer. Sumner and the lead units reached a roadway about halfway up Kettle Hill and paused. At this point, several of the officers from the 3rd, 10th, and 1st Volunteer called for a charge. Passing the other units, they charged the rest of the way up Kettle Hill, crashing through the defenses and driving the Spanish into retreat. Once they consolidated their position, the cavalry was able to fire on San Juan Hill in support of the infantry's assault there. Meanwhile, back on San Juan Hill, Hawkins and Ewer's men had reached the foot of the heights. Remember how I talked about how the Spanish fortifications were improperly positioned? Well, at the foot of the heights, these men got a brief respite from Spanish fire, allowing them to regroup for a moment and begin their assault. At the same time, the charge led by Ord had scrambled up the steep terrain. They paused a moment near the crest, then poured into the Spanish trenches. Ord himself was one of the first ones in, and he was mortally wounded. The Americans fought the Spanish in the trenches and drove them off before swarming around the blockhouse. It finally fell when troops entered through the roof. The Spanish defenders fell back to a secondary line of trenches to the rear, with the U.S. troops in pursuit. While this was happening, 
Pearson and his 2nd Brigade moved forward and secured a small knoll that anchored the American left flank. Back atop Kettle Hill, Roosevelt wanted to lead a charge over to the northern extension of San Juan Hill. He yelled for his men to go, but as he ran off, only five troops followed him. Old Teddy quickly returned to his lines, where he met Sumner. The troops said they didn't hear him, and by this point the fighting was over on top of the heights. Parker was even having mules drag two of his Gatling guns to the top. Sumner ordered the Rough Riders and the 9th and 10th Cavalry to stay on Kettle Hill and prepare for the Spanish counterattack that was sure to come, since these units made up the extreme right of the American line. They were also reinforced with an infantry unit that had been brought up. The Spanish counterattack that came against San Juan Hill was not very effective and was quickly repulsed. The same can't be said for the men on Kettle Hill, who faced a more serious attack from 120 Spanish regulars. But Parker on San Juan Hill ordered one of his Gatlings to fire obliquely against this attack and shredded the enemy soldiers, killing all but 40 of them. So, the Battle of San Juan Hill ended with an American victory, but it came at a high cost. American losses were 144 dead and 1,024 wounded, compared to the Spanish who lost 114 and had 366 wounded. From the heights, the Americans found themselves overlooking Santiago, but they were worn out from a tough day of fighting. From his HQ, Shafter actually considered withdrawing to await reinforcements, but Wheeler, who was at the heights, told the men to dig in and prepare to hold that position. This was a fortuitous move, because it forced Spain's hand. With the Americans in control of the heights, orders came to Admiral Severa from Havana, and he took his fleet out of Santiago Harbor on July 3rd and tried to escape westward along the coast. He was quickly intercepted by the U.S. fleet, and the ensuing naval battle of Santiago de Cuba left every Spanish ship beached, either on fire or partially sunk. The American land forces, bolstered by reinforcements, besieged Santiago, and the city surrendered on July 17th. Because of these events, the Spanish government asked the French ambassador in Washington to approach the McKinley administration to discuss peace terms. A ceasefire was signed on August 12th, and the war officially ended with the Treaty of Paris on December 10th, 1898. This treaty guaranteed the independence of Cuba and forced Spain to cede Guam and Puerto Rico to the United States. The Spanish also agreed to sell the Philippines to the U.S. for $20 million. The treaty was approved by the Senate on February 6, 1899, by a margin of only one vote. This splendid little war, as it was called, was not only a victory for the U.S. The McKinley administration used it as a pretext to annex the independent kingdom of Hawaii as well. But talking about that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends. And check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.